Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus has a perfect, unblemished record of faithfulness. From the beginning of this world and eternity past all the way to this moment and all the way forever, Jesus is faithful. So God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to trust him more and more. And we thank you, Father, that Christ is with us. As we just sang, his voice speaks a better word. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Lord, let us hear the word of our faithful Savior, Jesus. And may we respond by trusting him more. And Lord, as we study your word, God, I just confess that I'm not capable in my own power to teach the Bible. And I certainly am not strong and mighty to explain your word in a way that would make an eternal difference to those that will listen. So God, I just bring myself like loaves and fishes and ask that you would do what only you can do. Feed your people through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. And God, we know we're not the only church in town. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters who are our family, not our competition. God, I pray that you would bless the people of God gathered in various expressions of your church in this community. Specifically, Lord, we pray for the Grove Church in Titusville and Brad Russell. Lord, I thank you for Brad and his friendship and kindness to me over the years. And I ask that you'd bless him. Fill him with the spirit and I pray he would boldly and clearly proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. Build up your people today through the preaching of your word in the churches of this community, including this one. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Go ahead and be seated. If you have your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to go ahead and take them out and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We're going to continue our series of studies here in the book of Daniel. And like I have the last couple of weeks and probably will do almost every week of the series, I just want to give you some context for what's going on in this book. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four young Jewish men were taken into captivity in 605 B.C., when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar invaded the city of Jerusalem, he took them back to the capital of Babylon, the Babylonian empire there, and he placed those four young men in a three-year program that was designed to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture and basically fast-track them into places of influence inside of the Babylonian government. And that might sound like a pretty good gig, but don't forget that the kingdom of Babylon is a pagan, godless culture. So Daniel and his friends, the higher they climb the ladder, feel the wind of culture pressing more and more firmly against them. They're under constant pressure as people of God living inside a godless culture to turn their backs on God and adopt the godlessness of Babylon. And that makes the book of Daniel not only a great historical record, but a powerful study in what it looks like for us to live as faithful followers of Jesus in this day and time. Because listen, we are living in a modern day Babylon. We are living in a godless, pagan culture. And we are increasingly facing 
the pressure from culture to turn our backs on God and adopt the godlessness of our world. And you need to know perhaps no passage in the study of Daniel will more vividly portray that dynamic than Daniel chapter 3, our text for this morning. It's one of the most familiar Bible stories of all time, certainly out of this book. It's so filled with powerful truth, actually, that I just want to warn you in advance, we're not going to get all the way through the story today. So if you don't know the story, you have my permission to read ahead because we're going to leave on a cliffhanger, and it might bother you all week. So feel free to read ahead of time, but we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3. We'll work our way verse by verse through about midway of this chapter. Daniel chapter three, verse one says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces. Those are basically just seven layers of government bureaucracy. Imagine multi-layered government bureaucracy, but here it is right there in the scripture. It's of the kingdoms of this earth. He says they were summoned to come, now notice this phrase, to the dedication of the image, I'll I'll revisit that in just a second, of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, stop right there. Last week, last chapter, we studied a dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a, a massive image or a statue that was made from five different materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then a mixture of iron and clay. And if you'll recall, those different materials represented different kingdoms that would come and emerge onto the world stage and into world domination. And do you remember who the golden head represented in that image? Who to represent? King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. But the whole point of that dream was not that Nebuchadnezzar was the golden head. The whole point is that God is going to establish his own kingdom on this earth and his kingdom will put an end to all the kingdoms of men. That was the point of the dream. So the focal point of the image that he saw in his dream was God's work and worth, not Nebuchadnezzar's. And at first, at the end of chapter two, you find that it seems like Neb gets the point, right? But sometime between chapters 2 and 3, something happens and goes haywire in Nebuchadnezzar's brain. He decides to build his own image rather than honor the point of the dream statue God gave him. He builds this image 60 cubits high, which is about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So basically, he built an ancient statue to Minute Bowl. That's the dimensions of, none of you know who Minute Bowl is, but that's funny if you do. He makes the whole thing out of gold, by the way. That probably means that it was overlaid with gold, maybe not pure gold, but there it is, this 90-foot golden statue. And what becomes clear, as we'll read the rest of this chapter, is that Nebuchadnezzar's He's arrogantly disregarding all of what God told him in his dream. Okay, we'll see that more in just a second. But what I want you to notice before we move on is that there at the end of verse 2, like I pointed out, it says that the officials of the kingdom were summoned 
to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, so dedicating a statue is a pretty customary thing. I've never actually been to one personally, but I love the scene from Rocky Three when the officials in Philadelphia dedicate that statue to the great Rocky Balboa. You guys remember that, right? You should, or your education has not been complete. This huge crowd is gathered there at the steps. An unveiling's getting ready to take place before it does. A great 80s hokey high school marching band is somehow playing the theme to Rocky One. I don't know how that works. They are in real life of a movie. It doesn't matter. But it's a pretty corny but cool scene as all of the band is there and all of the crowd is gathered. And right there in the middle is this statue in honor of him. It's a really cool scene. When we watch that with our kids, we don't make them cover their eyes Or skip that scene. You know why? Because there's nothing inherently wrong with the dedication of a statue. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar says is going to take place. Come. All of the officials come to the dedication of a statue outside of the city. But notice what happens next. Daniel 3 verse 3 through 7. Verse 3 says this. Then the satraps, the prefects, then the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates... And all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So they come for what he'd advertised would be the dedication. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud. Now notice this. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Stop right there. Do you see what just happened right before our very eyes? The benign dedication of a statue turned into the worship celebration of a false god. You see the transition that takes place there, right in front of our eyes. And guys, that's another perfect representation of how the spirit of Babylon in our work is in our world is still at work in the world today. Remember, in chapter 1, we looked pretty closely at four different strategies that King Nebuchadnezzar employed to try and get young people to turn away from God and assimilate into the godless culture of Babylon. And we paralleled those four things to dynamics that are happening all around us today. If you weren't here that week, let me just give you the four we talked about from chapter one. Babylon targets the next generation. Babylon uses education for indoctrination. Babylon undermines purity in the name of support, Babylon seeks to confuse our identity. Any of that sound familiar to you? It's because we see it all around our world. Well, here we see another strategy of Babylon. Babylon pressures us down a slippery slope toward idolatry. That's the world in which we're living in. At first, Nebuchadnezzar didn't ask anyone to sin. 
There wasn't anything wrong with showing up to the dedication of a statue. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not in sin when they showed up to a benign statue dedication. But underneath it all, King Nebuchadnezzar had an insidious plan. He was moving culture strategically in a direction. His first step was just get them to show up. His second step is, hey, why don't you listen to the band play a few songs, like the theme from Rocky. We even have a bagpipe. Everybody loves bagpipes. Maybe stand right here in awe of this 90-foot-tall gold statue. I guarantee you've never seen anything like it. At first, he's not asking anyone to sin. He doesn't advertise what it is that he's getting ready to do, which is press everyone into the direction of idolatry, a worship celebration of something that is not God. But that's precisely where he intends for the current of culture to flow. And guys, that's the way it is when you live in Babylon and you need to know it. There is a cultural current that is pressing every single one of us in the direction of idolatry. And here's what you need to know as you live in a modern-day Babylon. Most of the time, it starts out benign, like having a career or putting your kids in youth baseball leagues or getting a boat or volunteering for a political cause. Now, I said those are benign, right? None of those things are inherently sinful, right? So you're not going to leave, and when your friends say, what would your pastor preach about? Well, you're not going to say, well, he preached against Little League. Imagine this guy, the tyrant. It's not, they're benign. But all of those things, while they may be perfectly good for your family, you need to know this. None of those things... None of the benign activities of our world, none of the normal course of events in the world that we live exist in a vacuum. All of the things of this world, they exist inside of a cultural current that's flowing in a direction. And the cultural current that is flowing in the direction is a direction toward godless idolatry. Almost before you realize it, what takes place inside of the world in which we live is that you begin to slowly and almost imperceptibly fall away from dedication to Jesus Christ as Lord simply because you're so consumed with your career or little league or weekends on the boat, or political movements. And you need to know, friend, that doesn't happen by accident. It's the direction of the culture that we are living in, headed constantly toward a godlessness, an idolatry that is vying for your affection and your attention, a desire to take anything in your life, no matter how benign or good or healthy it might be, to take anything in your life and capture your attention and affection with it in a way that causes you to turn almost imperceptibly away from being devoted to Jesus as Lord and Savior and God. And here's what you need to know, because it's one of the hardest things for us to see, that anything that replaces God is an idol in our life. Right? And do you know the idol 
that our world will most tempt you to worship yourself. Do you see what's happened here? Nebuchadnezzar made an image out of gold. Why did the gold represent Nebuchadnezzar? His idol was himself. And you see this happening all over the world. Our world has put self in the center. Guys, all of our, result, all of our sin is merely the result of us putting ourselves in the center of our life rather than Jesus And the result of all of that sin and self-centeredness is a culture that has now put self in the center of the universe. Do you guys see that happening? It's happening, and I'll show you how it's happening. There is a wholesale abandonment on absolute truth and the authority of God as God. There, there There is no more sense of absolute truth. Why? Because we have replaced God as the absolute authority at the center of all things. Listen, when I can override God's assignment of my biological sex, I'm putting myself in the center of moral authority and absolute truth. I'm putting myself in the place of God. But guess what? When you live like you can determine moral right and wrong, which is what you do every time you sin, you're putting yourself in the place of God. You are erecting an an image of yourself. Like King Nebuchadnezzar, there at the center of your life. And it might seem like a new and strange thing that culture has abandoned absolute truth and absolute moral authority by replacing God as the center of our lives. But it is a dynamic as old as the world itself. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden when man turned his back on God in an effort to be a little g-god himself. It's why Romans 1 says is the root of all ungodlessness. And the direction all of this is heading then. And guys, you need to be aware of this. And students, as you enter into the the world that you're getting ready to enter into, you need to know this. The direction all of this is heading is a culture then that has so replaced God as the center of all things, of absolute truth, of absolute moral authority, that This culture will get to the place and already is there where they will not tolerate anything less than the celebration of that kind of idolatry and culture. You guys realize that, right? The only thing that could be not tolerated today is the idea that you would be intolerant towards sin. You know what that's called? It's called putting self at the center in the place of God. If you don't celebrate godlessness in our culture, then culture turns up the heat. And that's welcome to Babylon. Now let's keep reading because you'll see it vividly here. Verse eight. Therefore at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harbin, backpipe, I got to tell you, I can't wait to get back to normal books of the Bible with normal words. In it. <laughs> when you hear that music, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And it's the blindness of Nebuchadnezzar. I'll tell you the answer to that. He's the God who last chapter showed up in your life, Nebuchadnezzar. This arrogant, godless king standing here in front of these three young men. Just think about this scene. The most important people in the most important empire on earth are assembled around a 90-foot statue of gold. And if you don't bow before that statue, you're going to get thrown into the massive furnaces that had either been used to refine the gold that overlaid the statue or cured the bricks to build the structure. And nearly every single person on that plane had chosen to bow except three young men whose hearts belong to God and God alone. Imagine the pressure. They're hated by their peers. That's who comes and tells about their rebellion. They're the target of the king. They're going to lose everything, literally their own lives. And what was their crime? What was their crime? Their crime was that they were committed to living faithfully to the Lord. Just let that sink in. These young people are about the only people who are choosing inside of a godless culture to live faithfully before the Lord and it lands them in a fire. It costs them everything. And guys, this is really worth considering because it's a key truth of scripture. You can seemingly make all the right choices and life can seemingly still go wrong. Guys, the reason I bring that up is because we need a biblical theology of pain and suffering. There is a version of Christianity that is wildly popular in our world today. It's a version called the prosperity gospel. It makes it seem that as long as you do all the right things, your life will be filled with nothing but health, wealth, and prosperity. Listen to me, friend. That is a lie from hell. And the teachers who propagate that are false teachers. Because the Bible is clear. You can seemingly make all the right choices and life can seemingly still go wrong. You want a great example out of our Bible? I'll give you one. Our Savior Jesus Christ did everything right. And he was despised and rejected and beaten and killed. And we aren't better than Jesus. You can do it all right. 
and still go through the fire. Now, here's what you need to know. Next week, this is such a key theme in this chapter, we're going to talk a lot more about a biblical theology of suffering, what God is doing in our pain, what God designs for our trials. But I want you to listen to the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised. Some of us, as we go through hard times in life, some of us, as we, we encounter obstacles or difficulty, it shocks us. You know why? Because we do not have a biblical foundation, many of us. We haven't inherited a robust theology of suffering. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Look at this. Here's a purpose. To test you as though something strange were happening to you. First, Peter 4 says, the pain of this life should not surprise us because it is a designed trial. It's a trial, whether it's persecution or rejection or sickness, it's a trial that tests your faith to show whether or not your faith is real. And that's, because, that's not because God doesn't know. God sees and knows already. It's because God wants you to see and know whether your faith is real. Just think of it this way. There is nothing more important in your life than that you are truly trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That you're bowing before him as your Lord and God. You know why? Because your very salvation rests on whether or not you genuinely are trusting in Jesus and depending on him. It's the only way that we are given entrance into the eternal kingdom of God and forgiven of our sin and restored to right relationship. The Genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine going through your whole life and never knowing whether you truly believe. So God sends trials that expose, that try your faith, that expose the material of your faith. Is it genuine faith? So here's the question that we'll ask and answer with the rest of our time. What does genuine faith look like when it is tried by fire? As you live in a godless culture that's pressuring you over and over and over again to abandon a, a heart of faithfully following God, what does genuine faith look like when it's tried by fire? Let's keep reading Daniel chapter 3, 16 through 18. This is where we'll stop for today. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, I love it, these young guys, these young bucks standing here in front of the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> I love these guys. We don't need to answer you in this matter. Like, we don't answer to you, but we'll give you an answer. If this be so, that you're going to throw us into a fire if we don't bow, you need to know. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Don't you love these guys? May their tribe increase, right? Makes my heart beat fast. In the face of unimaginable pressures in culture, godlessness bearing down on them, the most powerful men and people in the world all fixing their eyes on these three young men, they show us, by God's grace, what genuine faith looks like when you're walking through the fire. Here's what it looks like. They believe God, they trust God, and they obey God no matter what? And that's our big idea for this morning, friend. In a trial of your faith, genuine faith in the fire believes, trusts, and obeys God no matter 
what? You're in a trial today. If you're here on planet Earth, and I think most of you are, the rocket didn't go off. You are in a trial of your faith. You are facing the cultural current toward godless idolatry. You are in a trial. And in the trial of your faith, genuine faith believes, trusts, and obeys God no matter what. And with the rest of our time, with just a few moments, I just want to unpack that from verses 16 through 18. Number one, in a trial of fire, genuine faith believes what God has revealed about himself. Notice what they say in verse 17. They say, if this be so, meaning that you're going to throw us into the fire for not bowing before these false gods, our capital G God whom we serve. That little phrase is packed with an insight into their hearts. They clearly believe something. What is it? They believe that God is God and only God is God. They know that statue isn't God. They know Nebuchadnezzar isn't God. They know they aren't God. They know that God isn't their cosmic butler who exists simply to do their bidding when they ring the bell of prayer. He is God. He is the Lord over heaven and earth, the king over all kings, and they are his servants. Now, the question you should ask is, how would they know that? Well, because God made it clear in his word. He had just told them in chapter two. It's the entire theme of the whole Bible. God is God. The Bible's a book about God. And these three young Hebrews would have had the word of God, the Old Testament in their hands. And they would have known, for instance, that when God came to Moses in Exodus chapter three, he said what his name was. Do you remember what the name of God was in Exodus three? I am. Do you know what that means? You're not. (laughs) They know God is God and only God is God. He alone is the self-existent almighty God over heaven and earth. And in the trials of life, it's essential to remember we aren't God. We aren't in control. We aren't the masters of our fate and neither are our enemies. God is God. And that's directly connected to the next thing that God's clearly revealed about themselves that they refer to. Verse 17 again. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. They clearly know not only that God is God, they know that God is able to save. They look at the most powerful man in the world and they say, listen, bud, you're no match for God, bro. He is able to save Out of your hand. When he asks the question, who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? They say, we don't even need to dignify that with a response, but we'll tell you who. Our God, who is God alone, he is able to save. And you need to ask the question, how would they have known that? Just think about it. God didn't deliver their hometown of Jerusalem from being conquered. God didn't deliver Israel from falling into exile in Babylon. God didn't deliver their parents who were most likely put to death when the invasion took place and those young people were stolen from their homes. So these young men knew that God was able to deliver even though most of their lives he had not delivered their nation, their city, their families, their friends, and even themselves from exile and service in godless pagan Babylon. How would they have known that God could deliver and was able? Because they had the word of God. 
Because God revealed in his word in Genesis 1-1 that he is the almighty who created the heavens and the earth and all things exist by his power. They would have had in their hands Psalm 115-3 that says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. They would have known Job 42-2 that says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. They knew and believed what God had clearly revealed about himself in his world. And then what they did is they looked at their trials through the lens of who God is. The reason that's important is because when you don't have a foundation for who God is, as is clearly revealed in his word, you will view your God through the lens of your trial. You'll begin to say, well, God must not love me. Or God must not be faithful, or God must not care, or God must not be able, or God must not want good for me. Listen, friend, as you go through the trials of your life, I encourage you, seek the face of God in his word. And believe what he has clearly revealed about himself. Listen, God is your creator. God is your father. God is your shepherd. God is your keeper. God is faithful. God is good. God is sovereign. God is gracious. God is working out his good plan for your life. God is with you. God is for you. God is helping you. God is committed to do what's best. And no matter what's going on in your life, No matter how hot the fire may seem or how hard the trial is, that's who God is no matter what. So view your trial. View your trial through the lens of who God is, not view God through the lens of what your trial is. Number two, in a trial of fire, genuine faith trusts God with what he hasn't revealed about our trial. Look at verse 17. It says, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not. See that? When they say he will deliver us, but if not, here's what I take them to mean. I take them to be saying, we believe that our God is going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't do it the way we expect, we are still gonna trust him because he's God. And we're not. And we will not bow because we trust him with all the things that aren't clear about how this is going to play out. We trust him. Now listen to me. We trust him even more than our ability to understand him. They knew that one way or the other God was going to deliver them. All right? Maybe he was going to deliver them from having to go into the fire. He didn't do that, did he? Maybe he was going to deliver them through the fire. He did that. But maybe he was going to deliver them by taking them to his glorious eternal kingdom once they died in the fire. And any of those things would have constituted deliverance out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. They just didn't know how God was going to do it. They just trusted him with what he hadn't made clear about his trial. And guys, as you walk through the fire, you're going to face 10,000 questions that God has not directly answered. I know that. I talk with you this week after week after week. You'll ask questions like, God, will I beat cancer? God, will I keep my job? God, will I keep my house? 
God, will I live long enough to see my prodigal come home? God, what's going to happen? How's it going to play out? God, what will occur? 10,000 questions that God has not specifically answered. What do you do? What do you do? Well, you realize this. At the heart of every child are not only 10,000 questions that you may not have answered by God. There's one big question that needs to be answered by you. Will you trust God when you don't know exactly what he's going to do. Guys, I don't know how all of this plays out. I don't know all the specifics. You're going to find out just how little I know when we study the second half of Daniel and we talk about all the prophecies, all right? I don't know how it all plays out. I don't know if Putin's the Antichrist. I don't know if he's going to tattoo your right hands with barcodes so that you'll have to have the mark of the beast. I don't know. And I certainly don't know the specifics of your life and mine. I don't know how it's all going to turn out specifically. The question isn't how much we know about the specifics of our trial. The question is this. Will we trust God when we don't know exactly what he's going to do? And that's where a lot of us are today. You are facing a fire and you don't know how it's going to turn out. The question is, are you willing to stand against the pressure of culture and idolatry and abandonment of God and bow before the Lord by simply saying this, God, I don't know what you'll do, but I trust you. I trust you. I don't know what's going to happen in the midterm elections, but I'm pretty sure none of the candidates will keep their word, God. I don't know what the next 10 years look like for my children growing up in a culture so different than mine. I don't know, and neither do you. Here's what we know. Our God is God. He's good. He's faithful. And he calls us to trust him even when we don't understand him. Friend, will you trust God even when you don't know exactly what he'll do? Number three, in a trial of fire, God shows us that genuine faith obeys God no matter what. Look at verse 18. They say, we don't know what God's going to do. We do know what we're going to do by his grace. Be it known to you, king. It's not capital, king. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen, because they believe that God is God and they are not, and that we are made to serve him, they make up their minds in advance that they will obey no matter what. At the most basic level, friend, faith in Jesus, genuine faith is best expressed in obedience. Listen to what Jesus says to his followers in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Do you see what he's saying there? There is no use in us calling Jesus Lord if we will not obey his word. As bowing before Jesus means laying our life down in obedience before him. And for most of our lives, the battle that we face most often is a battle to obey simply because we believe that Jesus is Lord, that he knows best, even when we don't understand or necessarily feel like it. You know, I know some of us, when we read this chapter, we wonder, would I obey God if my life were on the line? 
You guys ever read the stories of martyrs or the stories of these trials and fire and wonder, what would I do in that situation? I don't know. Would I obey God if my life were on the line? Anybody ever wondered that? No one's ever wondered that. I wondered that. But if you've ever wondered that, I want to give you just a little test as you ask the question, would I obey God if my life were on the line? Let me just ask you this. Do you consistently obey God when your life's not on the line? Is your life already laid down? Calling Jesus Lord by obeying him because you believe and trust him? Guys, in the trial of fire, genuine faith believes, trusts, and obeys God no matter what. How is he calling you to believe him, to trust him, and obey him today? And before we go, there's just one last thing you need to know. You can't do this without Jesus. You see, if you go out of this room and you say, I'm, I'm going to work myself up into enough faith, into enough belief, into enough trust, into enough obedience, that I'm going to stand against the face of pressure in this culture, you will fall before you leave this place. You cannot do this without Jesus. You see, that's the rest of the story of the Bible. God sent his son Jesus into this godless pagan world so that he could walk on this earth. He could go through every fire that we would ourselves have to endure. He would stand the trial in our place, the trial that all of us have failed in one way or the other, so that he could could live in us and through us with his victorious power. Listen to me, friends. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 say this. Since then, we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? Our confession is we need Jesus because we can't do it on our own. We are trusting in his power, not our own. For to me to live is Christ as Christ lives in me. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen to me, friend. As you're walking through a trial, here's what you need to know. Jesus has already gone through the trial before you. Jesus desires to meet you there. And for you to experience the beautiful mercy and grace and intimacy of a Christ who is your high priest, who loves and cares for you and has mercy and grace. He's not expecting you to be perfect. He's perfect for you. So fall before Jesus. Bow in faith before Christ Ask him for mercy and grace in your time of need. And next week, what we'll find is that the place of fire is a place of fellowship with a God who so loved that he gave. Call on Jesus in the midst of your trial. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's enter into a time of prayer. I just want to ask you to respond in prayer to the truth of this word. 
Whatever your trial might look like today, it may be persecution, it may be hardship, it may be sickness. Would you just bring that before God and just acknowledge, Father, I'm going through this trial and the fires are hot and the pressure is hard. Help. Would you ask God to stir your heart to believe the truth about who God is as revealed in his word? God, give me faith to believe you are who you say you are. Faithful and strong, able to save. Pray that he would stir up faith, that you would trust him with all the things you don't understand about him. Things he hasn't made clear. Pray for faith to trust him. Even when you don't know how it's going to turn out. Would you pray for the fire of God to stir your heart? That you, by depending on Jesus' power and not your own, would be committed to obey God no matter what. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, your great high priest, who's willing to give you all the mercy and grace that you need to be right with God and to live forever as his child, would you right now call on Jesus to save you? Make that your first prayer of belief, believing and trusting in Jesus. Father, I thank you for this 2,600-year-old story that is as relevant for today as it was 2,600 years ago. And I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking through the fires and trials of their lives. And God, I know the fire's hot for many of them. I know the pressure is real and meets them every morning as they wake up. And Father, I pray that you'd stir our hearts to believe every word of the scriptures that reveals who you are. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust everything you haven't revealed about what's next in our trial. And God, I pray that you would steady our hearts with a conviction to obey you no matter what. By God's grace, we pray these things through the power of Jesus who lives in us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.